In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Well, thank you to all those who have uh, taken part in the service and thank you for joining us this morning and let me add my warm welcome uh, to you. Now we continue our studies in these early chapters of Luke's Gospel. Luke writes his Gospel along with the second volume Acts to give us certainty, certainty concerning matters of salvation. Not confidence, certainty. It's a very bold claim. And yet if it's true, and uh, I hope if you're not a Christian that you will be persuaded that it is, how good it is to have certainty. Certainty as to what the gospel is and certainty as to how the gospel spreads in Jesus' international rescue mission. And people come to believe. Now, we have the Bible and God's Word and His promises. And in terms of His international rescue mission, we have 2,000 years of evidence. 
Now, the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel focus on the birth of Jesus. Chapter 1 anticipates his birth. Chapter 2 explains his birth, describes it. Both chapters, 1 and 2, explain the significance of it. This morning, we look at the first half of chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. Next week, God willing, the second half. Now, let me give you five words, five simple words from our passage, all concerning Jesus' birth. We'll reflect on each of them in turn. Here they are. Number one, historical, humble, glorious, witnessed, and treasured. Historical, humble, glorious, witnessed treasured. First and briefly, Jesus' birth is historical. Luke's description of Jesus' birth, and we can sense that very clearly as Malcolm read it, is factual, historical, and reads like eyewitness testimony, which is exactly what it is. Luke's purpose in writing his gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, is to give us a carefully researched, orderly account of what happened based on eyewitness testimony so that we can have certainty. Not confidence, but certainty. Notice in Luke's account the factual details. Verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be registered. These facts are verifiable from other sources of literature in the ancient world. Look, and he's even more specific in verse 2. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. In other words, he goes from the national political landscape to the local councils. Verse 3, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Then Luke's narrative focuses on this one family, Joseph and his betrothed Mary. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, here's an important marker from our writer, Luke, that we might have certainty about God's word his promises. The city of Bethlehem, King David's city, was the place God's promised Messiah King would be born. Moreover, he would be of the house and the lineage of David, or the line of David. And that was promised centuries before. For example, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, Micah 5. Here's a verse from one of them, Micah. You, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler. The events Luke describes are in fulfillment of that promise. So here is another example, and these early chapters of Luke are full of such examples that we can have certainty, absolute trust in the Word of God, which contains the promises of God that reveals the character of God, God who always keeps his Word.
And if you treasure one thing from the studies in Luke, that would be a good one. That God always keeps his word. And then Luke continues, verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Jesus' birth is historical. It happened at a particular time in history, precisely dated. It happened in a particular place, predicted centuries before Luke writes that we might have certainty. Certainty for believers about the things that we have been taught and believed. But you might not be a believer yet. You might not be a believer because you have always regarded the accounts of Jesus' birth as a myth, wrapped up as part of a Christmas package, part of the experience of Christmas. You may have only heard them read at carol services or seen these events depicted on Christmas cards. But consider them now. Luke is not writing a myth. His writing is nothing like mythical writing. He is writing as an historian about events that happened. And so can I encourage you to consider Luke's gospel in the terms in which he writes. As a carefully researched account of what happened, based on eyewitness testimony. And if you would like someone to read through Luke or another of the Gospels with you, we would be very glad to set that up for you. Please just ask. And please keep listening week by week as we study Luke's historical narrative. Jesus' birth is historical. Second, it is humble it is humble. Jesus is born in some kind of outhouse or animal shelter, and he lays his head in a feeding trough. There is no room for sentimentality here. It is a humble birth, and the description humble is perhaps not sufficient. It is shocking. It is humiliating. For any child to be born in this way is surely humiliation. For any mother to give birth in this way is surely humiliation. Humanity in the image of God reduced to this in the place where the animals are. But even more so because this is not any child. Consider the episodes that Luke records on either side of this. The episode before is Zechariah's song at the end of chapter 1. Let me read two verses, 68 and 69. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. God is about to 
as Zechariah bursts into song, God is about to break into this world in the person of Jesus to redeem his people. In Jesus, God is raising up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant, David. David looked forward and Jesus is the fulfillment, the long-promised Messiah King, the once and for all leader, the King of God's everlasting kingdom, the King with no equal, the summit of salvation and redemption history. Zechariah sings with joy about Jesus' glorious birth. And then Luke describes the circumstances of his birth. For this child to be born in this way is shocking, humiliating. And the episode that follows the appearance of the angel and the heavenly host to the shepherds, a glorious sight and a glorious song. The angel reminds us who the child is. This child born in the city of David is a savior who is Christ the Lord. For this child, whose birth leads to unmitigated rejoicing in heaven, to be born in this way is shocking and humiliating. And Luke's faithful eyewitness account, and he would not have put this in in this way were it not true, cries out to us, surely something is amiss, surely something is wrong. But it's not wrong. It is exactly right. How do we know? Because the sign that the Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born. The sign that the Savior who is Christ the Lord, the long-promised Messiah King, is born is, verse 12, that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The sign, the proof that the Savior of humanity has been born is that he lays down his head in an animal's feeding trough. That is the sign that authenticates his identity as the savior of humanity. Now, why was Jesus born in this way? Because of what it reveals about him and his saving work. He is a servant. And all of that was promised beforehand. The prophets spoke of the Lord's Messiah King, but they spoke too of the Lord's servant. Both are fulfilled in Jesus. Both are embraced in Luke's description. He is a servant and he is a saviour. And as we have seen in these early chapters of Luke, the salvation Jesus offers humanity is salvation from sin, the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God now and forever. The salvation Jesus offers humanity is achieved through his humiliation and death, his humble life, is anticipated by his humble birth, 
and foreshadows his humble death. His rejection at birth, there was no room for him, foreshadows his rejection in life and death. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head at his birth, but an animal feeding trough, and even that comfort would be denied him. In his own words as a grown man, Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The nature of Jesus' birth foreshadows the nature of his life and death. His life is one of suffering service. And by application, so also is the nature of the Christian life on earth. And that is something every Christian and every Christian church must come to terms with. Here's the verse from later in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Luke chapter 9 is about the Christian life. What following Jesus serving him in ministry is like. It is a costly life on the earth, glorious in eternity, but costly now. The mission of Jesus to the world is costly. It is weak. It is at the end of Luke 9, a chapter on the cost of discipleship, that Jesus spoke the words, foxes of holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, let me ask you if you have come to terms with the character and the nature of the Christian life. Is suffering service true of your life? It is one of the marks of authenticity. It is one of the marks of certainty that you are a true follower of Jesus, a true church of Christ. It does not mean necessarily that we give up our comforts for Jesus. It might, though, as Morag has prayed, we might have to do so if he so asks of us. We do whatever he asks of us. We go wherever he sends us. We willingly accept that we may have no place in the world for a place in the world to come. We willingly accept humiliation for his sake and for the gospel's sake. Jesus' birth is historical, humble, and then third and wonderfully, side by side with all of this, glorious. The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem is lowly. As the carol puts it, and I hope you're enjoying, as I am, singing or not singing. These carols nod at Christmas time. We really understand where they are from in the Bible. The nature of Jesus' birth in some outhouse in Bethlehem is lowly, but at the same time, at the same time in the fields around Bethlehem, there is glory. Lowly, yet glory. 
Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord shone around them when the angel appeared to them. Then the angel spoke to them a glorious message to accompany the glorious sight. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. Now just let your mind go to scene one. The child laying his head in an animal trough. And now let your mind go to scene two, out there in the fields at the same time. For unto you this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord is born. And this will be a sign that you will find him lying in a manger. And if that wasn't enough glory, suddenly... Verse 13, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The glorious sight of the heavenly host, the angelic massed choirs of heaven. That's what they saw. And they heard their singing. Singing, like they had never heard before. Glorious singing to the glory of God. What a sight it must have been. What a sound it must have been. The shepherds' reaction, they were filled with great fear, at least initially. They were filled with great fear as they saw and heard the glory of God. Now let's stand back from this and take stock. The appearance of the glory of God is rare. At the time of the Exodus, when God confirmed his covenant with his people, the appearance of the glory of the Lord, Exodus 24, was like a devouring fire in the sight of the people. Or when King Solomon dedicated the temple. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, 2 Chronicles 7, 1, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. When all the people saw the glory of the Lord, they bowed down with their faces to the ground and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good. Seeing the glory of God is frightening. It is an awesome sight. At its sight, the people of God bowed down with their faces to the ground. But that right fear of the Lord leads to worship as they come to terms with what that awful sight and awesome sight reveals about their God. We see it in the prophets when Isaiah catches sight of the train of the Lord's robe. He is struck to the core of his being with his uncleanliness and need of forgiveness. And then wonderfully he is touched by the angel, forgiven his sins. 
commissioned to speak. So with Ezekiel, so with Daniel, so with the shepherds. The appearance of the glory of God coincides in salvation history with events of enormous import. The Exodus, the prophecy of Isaiah about the exile, the prophecies of Ezekiel and Daniel in the exile, and now on a hillside outside Bethlehem, the whole heavenly host breaks in to the earth and reveals the glory of God. And these shepherds, let's just call them ordinary blokes, are convicted in their hearts as their lives are shone upon by the glory of God. It is no surprise at this climactic moment, the birth of the Messiah, that the glory of God is seen and heard. Consider just for a moment what the angel said to the shepherds and what the heavenly host sung. Much of what is said and sung we have already heard in Luke chapter 1, like fear not. It's what Gabriel said to Mary. Good news of great joy. Or in the city of David, a saviour is born. What is new? Well, the first explicit reference to Christ the Lord. Jesus is the long-promised Messiah King. But there is something else new of massive significance. That the angel is talking about a place like Scotland or a creative access country far from Bethlehem. Verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Jesus is savior for all humanity, for Jew and for Gentile. There are hints of that in chapter one in Mary and Zechariah's song, both refer to the promise to Abraham. But now it is made explicit. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And next week we will see in Simeon's song, that he sings of salvation for all the earth. Jesus' birth is good news for all people. Jesus' salvation is for all people who repent and believe in him for the forgiveness 
of their sins. Jesus' salvation is for all people. Many, though, reject his salvation because they will not accept it is for all people. Many reject his salvation because they do not believe they need it. Whoever you are, you need the salvation Jesus offers you. Without it, you are not at peace with God. Without it, God is against you. His judgment, his wrath is against you. And so you must not think the words of the angel, fear not, are for you. They are not for you, for anyone, unless they repent and believe. For those who have not believed, they have everything to fear. They are not for you, therefore, until now, perhaps. For yet in the moment the Holy Spirit convicts someone with mortal fear, fear of their sin against the revelation of the glory of a holy God. There is the opportunity right now to turn in repentance to Jesus as you consider his lowly birth and his lowly death bearing your sin and no longer to listen and admire the heavenly host singing peace on earth but to be someone of whom they sing because your heart is reconciled to almighty God salvation is for all people and Luke develops that all through his gospel, and especially in his second volume, Acts, as the gospel comes to the nation of the earth. And one of the applications of these two books to us will be, this should determine everything we do as a church. To take this gospel and this message to people. To send people out into this nation, and into the nations of the earth with his gospel to train leaders to plant gospel churches. We are, God willing, about to redevelop this building. Why on earth are we spending money to do that if it enables us to do what we are primarily called to do, which is to engage in the global mission of Jesus? It is a good thing to do. It is a wise thing to do. But that is what it is for. For the next hundred years, historical, humble, glorious, for it is witnessed. The shepherds are witnesses. They are witnesses of the glory of God. They saw it. We're reading an account here written by someone who talked to the people who saw it. They are witnesses of what the angel and the heavenly host said and sung. 
They are witnesses of the baby boy in Bethlehem. They went to see what they had been told. They are witnesses. They are eyewitnesses. That is why they are here in Luke's gospel. They are not there because they are shepherds. They are there because they were the ones who saw it. But why did God choose the shepherds as key witnesses at his birth? Well, in keeping with his humble, lowly birth, they are humble and lowly, that is true. They are typical of the kind of people in Luke's gospel that respond to the message of salvation and believe in Jesus. But we shouldn't make too much of that. One of the comments I read or heard preparing the sermon was very helpful. The shepherds were just ordinary blokes chosen by God as his witnesses. They are witnesses of what happened. But they are believers too. There is no skepticism at what they saw and what they were told. They talk together and they decide to go to Bethlehem to see what has happened. They go quickly. They make haste. They don't Consider whether they should. They believe. They make haste, and after seeing the child in Bethlehem, Luke records, verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. Notice the connection there. Their praise, their glory, their belief in God is based on what? What had been told them by God. What is our belief based on? What God's Word says. They are witnesses of what happened. They believe. Question, have you seen and understood what has happened? but not yet believed. May your knowledge lead you to Jesus. May your knowledge and the conviction of the Word of God in your soul lead you to Bethlehem to see that child who was born and to Calvary to see where he died. Go to him. Come to him in repentance and faith for the forgiveness of your sins. Let your knowledge yield to living faith and return to your life, changed, glorifying, and praising God for all you have heard and seen, as it has been told you by Luke, who was told by people who were there what they heard God say. They are witnesses of what happened. They are believers. And like all true believers, they are witnesses to others. They go to tell Mary and Joseph what the message of the angels was, verse 16. 
And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They told Mary and Joseph what the angel had said to them, what the heavenly host had sung. They told Mary and Joseph the gospel. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. Just listen for a moment to their repetition of these words to Mary and Joseph. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. Verse 18, And all who heard it, the angel's message told them by the shepherds, wondered at what the shepherds told them. They were struck by what they heard and saw, and they tried to take it in, Joseph included. Obviously, there were some others there. We don't know who. Historical, humble, glorious, witnessed, finally. Treasured. Luke's focus is on Mary's reaction, verse 19. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. All that she had been told by the angel nine months before, before when she conceived by the Holy Spirit. And I, well, I don't wonder, she must have been shocked and humiliated at the nature of her baby's birth. In all the pain and indignity of her labor in these surroundings, could, how could, how could, her child be the Son of God, the Savior. But the angels came and told her as she gave birth to her baby that out there in the fields, the angels, the glory of God had been seen. That when he was born, what the angels said and the glorious rejoicing that had broken out in heaven And she knew that everything she had been told about her baby was true in the squalor of her surroundings. As she looked at her baby boy lying in the manger, certainty flooded her heart. The nature of his birth foreshadows his life and his death. His life is one of suffering service. So also is the nature of the Christian's life on earth. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If anyone would come after me, your life, your life on earth and the life of your church will be like the squalor of the stable, will be outside for there is no room. Glorious in eternity, but costly now. That is how it is 
That is our experience. And so we need the comforting words of the shepherds too. In the humility and humiliation of taking up our cross, in the suffering service we are called to, in all the stress and struggle that accompanies churches, individuals, taking the gospel to the nations of the earth, the glory of God rests upon us. And when one person is converted, no one takes notice. But as Luke reminds us later in his gospel, all of heaven rejoices. So like Mary, we treasure all the promises of God in our hearts. We trust them absolutely. All is well. And like Mary, we obey what the Lord has asked us to do. And that's how our text ends. What did she do? She called him Jesus. She obeyed God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these passages of Scripture that are so rich and so powerful and so helpful to us. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to ponder and reflect on these truths in our hearts and find comfort in our circumstances to find confidence that all is well. Father, we pray for any listening who are not yet Christians. We pray that knowledge will lead to living faith. Lead them to the place of Jesus' birth and to the place of Jesus' death. And help them believe. For Jesus' sake. Amen.